Hey everyone, before we get to the meat of the podcast, I've got a few con announcements. First, are you going to Gen Con? Guess what? So are Jeff Greiner, Rudy Basso, and I. If you want to see us, we're going to be doing a live roundtable recording at 5 p.m. the Friday of Gen Con. That's 5 p.m. on Friday, August 5th in the Crown Plaza in Grand Central Ballroom D. Look for it when the Gen Con event schedule comes out. Details on more panelists and an after-party with games and food and more stuff to come. Can't wait to meet you all in Indianapolis. Then... If you can't get to Indianapolis, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be a featured guest at Roll20Con. It's an online convention run by my favorite table. It's going to be run for 24 hours starting on June 3rd, and it doesn't have just me. James D'Amato, Adam Coble, Nolan Jones, Anna Prosser-Robinson, Margaret Crone, and so many other RPG superstars are going to be there. You can get all the details at Roll20Con.net. Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Indracasso. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor, go give us a baller rating on iTunes. It helps us so much. Seriously, if you're listening to the Tome Show and paying nothing for it, but you want to help support us, it takes less than a minute of your time to go give us a great rating. We do shout-outs to listeners who give us great ratings on the air. I'll read at least one new five-star rating verbatim each episode and credit the person who left it. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. All right, and this week's rating comes from Modern Kutuzov. Uh, I hope I am saying that correctly. Uh, and the review is entitled, Best D&D Podcast. And here are the words... This is a superior D&D podcast and has been for several years. There's a great variety in topics and formats, but each provides a valuable niche. Highly recommend. Well, thank you so much, Modern Kutztazov. Kutztaz, Kutztaz. Thank you so much, listener. You are a really, really great person, and I highly recommend you, even if your weird username is hard to pronounce. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. Today, we're talking about the latest D&D survey, the state of organized play in D&D, and then we've got an interview with Dan Dillon and Stephen Rowe of The Four Horsemen about their Kickstarter for the talented bestiary for the Pathfinder RPG. Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. What is the strangest gaming item you own for any game? Does not need to be D&D. Uh, Topher Cohan is back with us at the round table. Topher, how are you? I'm doing good, my friend. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Topher, what is the strangest gaming item you own? The item I get the most, oh my God, really, from is I own a real human skull. Whoa. <laughs> so when you bring that sucker out and put it on the table and people think, oh, that's a prop, mm -hmm. one of those plastic Halloween skulls, and they pick it up and they feel it and they look at it and they realize, is this real? And you go, yep. <laughs> that always gets a um, – that always gets the appropriate response, I think, for for any good RPG. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I actually uh, own not only a human skull, but I also own a second full human skeleton. Uh, <laughs> 
So uh, call should, me super jealous. Super I'm jealous. sorry. I shouldn't say I own. Uh, I grew up with it in the house. My father, who is a physician, uh, owns it. Uh, so um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was weird. It was a weird thing to grow up with as a kid. Um, so so yes, go. Uh, that is going to be a hard one to top, certainly. Uh, Joe Listowski also back with us at the roundtable. Joe Listowski, what is the strangest gaming item you own? Uh, well, I. I guess I could call her a gaming item because I have used her in-game. I am uh, a fan of uh, tarantulas, of arachnids in general, and I have a Chilean rose-haired tarantula named Muffinhead who occasionally appears on my D&D table, especially when we go into the Underdark. Uh, I wanted to bring her to the store that I work at, Modern Myths in Western Massachusetts, uh, to have her show up for some of the adventures in the, uh, in the, uh, rage of demons season. But my manager is a horrific arachnophobe. And so I, I figured that was probably not the best idea. Uh, but I'll send a picture along that we can maybe post, uh, with this, uh, with this, uh, podcast of muffin head next to a D and D mini. So you can get a size, uh, comparison. Oh God. Oh God. Uh, yes, you can check that out at the tomeshow.com. As an arachnophobe myself, I'll make sure we hide it in a link so it doesn't just jump and surprise you. You will have to willfully click it to see the picture. Uh, but it is super, super impressive. Um, and horrifying. Uh, <laughs> uh, Paige Lightman is back with us at the round table. Paige, what is the strangest gaming item you own? Well, it's actually a two-way tie. Uh, I I really like gnolls, and I really like hyenas, and I have a pretty realistic-looking hyena mask. Ooh. It's a big latex mask, and so that got some real airtime during Out of the Abyss. Of course, of course, yes. Uh, mm. That's my DM prop, but uh, I actually lost my temper quite famously during the Red Hand of Doom back in the days of 3.5, and uh, got so pissed off at my dice who were about ready to kill the whole party that I threw them in the microwave and melted them. So I have these horrifically melted blobs of dice and I keep them in my dice bag and they never fail to draw a comment around people that are new. (laughs) That's amazing. That's cool. I like that a lot. I have to say um, I'm beginning to understand hearing the skull, the spider, the hyena mask, the melted dice. I'm, I'm beginning to understand why people who aren't gamers fear gamers a little bit. Uh, <laughs> starting to make sense to me. Uh, so, and Ben Heisler is with us. Ben, what is the strangest gaming item that you own? Man, so, like, mine mine sucks compared to all these. So, <laughs> I, uh, this is this is funny because this is normally gets a, a lot of laughs outside of a gamer group but sometimes in one um but i often uh have in my bag or in my car a variety of fake mustaches uh that i have for either playing npcs or for larps or just because it's always fun to put on a strange outlandish fake mustache uh, and i collect them in my travels so well i like that a lot and that's super helpful uh you know when you're switching from npc to npc Really, it gives that visual clue that players look for so they know uh, which is which. New D&D survey for March coming up. And what we have is something pretty cool. Mike Merles, in his prelude to the survey, says that it looks like they are getting ready to maybe tackle their first big mechanical update for 5th edition, and they're trying to see what people want. There's all sorts of questions about, do you want new classes, new races, new spells, new feats? Which classes do you want to see? 
expanded. All that good stuff is in there. Um, so you should definitely go take that survey. I know it is a hot button issue right now in all of the various D&D communities. So I'm going to kick it off with Topher Cohan. Topher, what do you want to see in a big mechanical update for 5th edition? Well, I think that some of the classes need some expansion. Obviously, I believe that there can never be enough colleges for bards. <laughs> I mean, in my mind, there could be hundreds of those, and that'd be fine for me. And I think that the more spells are always great, as long as they fit an, a need or a flavor. I don't want spells for the sake of spells. Um, especially low-level spells would be great, kind of fun to add a little more flavor into there. Mm-hmm. But I think that ultimately what I think they need is they need to take what they have and expand it. So like the classes for the, the colleges for the bards, give me more flavor for warlocks. Give me more flavor or subclasses or whatever you want to call them for fighters and those things. Give me – let me be a dragonborn of, of different – of more kind of dragons. You know, expand that more. Um, I think that, you know, clerics – one of the things I liked about fourth was the real flavor in clerics. And, you know, how you could be the sun or the storm and all those kind of things kind of – and bring that kind of stuff back. That's what I would love to see. Something along those lines I think is what I would want to see. Now, that said, I think mechanically the game is pretty sound. I think we're in a good place with the game. There's not too much minutia. There's not too much stuff to bog us down yet. I mean, it's D&D. It's going to get there. It just happens. Uh, I think we're in a good place. So I would like whatever mechanics they add – has the story reason or a lot of fluff to go with it. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. And I think we will definitely see that. You know, they've been so story focused in 5th edition, which was part of the promise. And they have definitely done that. The other thing that I think is really great, because I do see this discussion of what's power creep going to do to the game and too many options are going to weigh us down. You know, I think they've done a great job by... through the way they're handling things like the Adventurers League. Like, you could only use the Elemental Evil player's companion for the Elemental Evil storyline, that kind of thing. Um, You know, and and Ravenloft has different character option restrictions than, say, what uh, Rage of Demons had, right? I think what's cool about that and what's in the DMG and all that kind of stuff is they've given the DM a lot of agency to cut the things that the DM doesn't want to see. So I'm one of those people who's like, yeah, give us all the mechanical crunch stuff you want. Uh, DMs will be able to cut out what they don't need, provided it doesn't get so bloated that the DMs can't keep up with it. Right. I'm talking about with their current release schedule, if they put out a mechanical book that's big and robust every two years, then, uh, you know, that is something that I think DMs are going to be able to handle and regulate as opposed to 7,000 feats in four years that you're expected to know. Um, So that definitely makes sense. Uh, All right. Let us move on to the next panelist, Joe Lestowski. What would you want to see in a big mechanical update for fifth edition? Well, I think uh, if they could uh, re-release fourth edition, that would be fantastic. Uh, because that's my favorite edition, and I'm going to start a lot of arguments with that. Um, wow. No. <laughs> yay, Joe! Yay, Joe! There, yay, Joe! Go in there swinging. Yay, Joe. <laughs> um, I'm not surprised. <laughs> as, as, as that's not going to happen, uh, I, I would like to see um, a more of a fourth edition look at some of the options, uh, not so much in the here's a completely different flavor of something, but just here's a way to make it different enough that it feels unique for you. Uh, Like 
give us some more ways that fighters can attack. Give us some more interesting, uh, you know, if, if you're talking spells, give us give us uh, spells that that do different tactical things. Give us give us a chance to to really. Uh, one of the things I loved about fourth edition was when they had the um, the layer assault program, where you were you knew that you had a certain problem that you had to solve, and everybody tried to design the best team to go after it. And I feel like fifth edition doesn't have that level of customization yet. Doesn't have that level of, of, well, I want to make somebody who's all about, uh, lightning spells. Well, you don't get lightning bolt till you can cast third level spells. And so you've got shock and grasp and that's kind of it. You know, like that sort of a thing. Like I, I want to give players more options to sort of do the things they want to do instead of saying, Oh, well we can, reflavor this spell to do this other thing because that's great from a dm fiat point of view but i feel like as somebody who works in a store that sells gaming products i think people will buy products instead of having to reflavor stuff like they want it written on the page that this does lightning damage or this does psychic damage or this does whatever uh and i think that would uh help out a lot of uh gaming stores which i think we're going to talk about later when we talk about changes to uh what's going on um I think that would help a lot of stores out in terms of selling material and uh, getting people into the store to buy that material and then play with it. I think Joe hits it on the head. I mean, we if you've listened to this podcast with me on it, you know how much I love 4th Edition, and I think it was a really great edition. But I think one of the things 4th Edition did, in my mind, better than 5th is doing, is give me something at low level that makes my character interesting for long periods of time. I feel like you know, having observed through Adventures League and observed through jamming at stores, and playing at conventions and stuff, there's a rush to get to tier two, to get to level five and above, because they, people feel like their characters can't do anything at levels one through four. I think if they add more more mechanics, more crunch, more whatever in, I would love to see it for lower levels to get to make those characters um, more more playable for longer, more interesting for longer, I guess the words I'm looking for. So I, I am in the somewhat enviable position of someone that has played a lot of the 5th edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of characters that are in Tier 3, um, and I'm not trying to brag, but it's one of those things that once you have done that trip a time or two, uh, playing at 3rd and 4th level particularly when your character comes into their own, it uh, gets a lot more fun. And I think there's something that's missing, especially with Adventures League, because there's a lot of modules now that are 4-hour adventures that give you 1200 xp which you know push you right through all of those early levels and push you right into you know end of tier one start of tier two and i think that's a design mistake actually Mm -hmm. um so just to be the devil's advocate i think the low levels especially three and four and a little bit of two are fun because it's a great way that you come into the character and honestly getting three or 900 XP is not that hard. <laughs> well, and uh, we should throw out, right, that you do still play 4th edition, right? Um, you play 5th and I, I replayed some 4th edition uh, over the past couple months, and there were some things I liked about it a lot and some things that I liked 5th edition a whole lot more for. Mm-hmm. And if if that's the discussion, then I can happily leap into oh, that. Oh, no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> I just thought, I've seen you on the social media posting stuff about you playing 4E, so I thought it would be neat to bring up that you have very recent experience with both. Yes, yes, yeah. I do have very recent experience with both. And it's... like... Like Joe and Topher, I miss some of the options. Like, I miss, you know, fighters being able to be more tanky. And, like, I miss marks, because those were pretty cool. Um, and I miss come and get it as a power. Like, that would be awesome to have back. <laughs> and you really miss your Tempest fighter. Um, <laughs> uh, 
know he's making like, a fey. Uh, uh, the thing is, as a fighter at the same level, I was doing a Tempest fighter in fourth. If I make a fighter in fifth, then I can do essentially the same things. If I just go pure fighter only, there's no spike chain to do it with, but I get the same number of attacks. Especially if I do a reach weapon or do a great weapon fighter that goes around and whacks things really hard. So I hear what you're saying, Ben, and I don't disagree that when you get to level three and four, and even level two, it's fun. But my question is, this is the question for the the, the 5 players, is that I feel like that at levels two and three and somewhat four, there's, in each class, there's basically one track to take if you want to be successful. If you're a bard, you take these spells and these things. If you're a fighter, you do this. If you're a paladin, you do this. Yes, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't say they aren't fun to play if you just take your thing, but if you want to be quote-unquote effective and quote-unquote powerful, then this is the correct path to take. Or at least that's the perception that the average player has in 5th edition. I, I would also disagree in my experience, which is obviously different than yours. High damage calculational min-maxers will tell you that there are certain patterns with which to cre- achieve highest DPS or heal per second. Flat out true. However, in D&D League play, I have seen some really powerful min-maxers, as well as newbies, really stretch out the boundaries of what's best. We all know that Arcane Trickster is not the hottest rogue, and there's a lot of them out there because they're fun to play, because they have good role-playing props. Um, and I see it time and time again, where people are moving away from the high damage classes, specifically to classes that have better role-playing props or are more colorful. Sure. But again, everybody's experience. Getting back to the, the idea of uh, what, what could be changed in the next rules update, uh, one of the things that I have had difficulty as a DM uh, using is the idea that uh, monsters have a certain challenge rating, and that challenge rating often doesn't feel like it matches characters of the level that should be able to take on that challenge rating. And that's often feels like the challenge rating was designed for the most optimized characters of that level. And I'd like to see sort of a change in the math used in monster challenge ratings so that I, you know, if I flip open the monster manual and I need to grab some monsters for, for some play, I won't accidentally kill my party because I grabbed something that I thought was appropriate level. Uh, and so I think if they just adjusted those numbers a little, that would go a long way towards making it easier for somebody to DM without uh, doing a million hours of prep work beforehand to make sure that the monsters aren't actually going to kill your party. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think the that was one of the greatest things about DMing 4th Edition. It was super, super easy to build an encounter with those numbers. I don't oh, yeah. know why that wasn't kept, uh, because now we have this weird backward calculus when you're building an encounter that only works part of the time anyway. You know, But I think it's also because 5th Edition is a much more swingy system. It has all these weird spikes in it. So there's really mm-hmm. no accounting for party makeup the way there was in 4th. Uh, That's true. Yeah, yeah. It would be cool to see that. Uh, Paige, what would you like to see in a big mechanical update for 5th edition? So I firmly believe that bloat and low-quality splat books killed both 3rd edition and 4th edition. They have very deep scars where this is concerned because I really loved both of those systems. I do not believe that Wizards has demonstrated any ability to promote responsible additional mechanics in the past. And while past performance is no guarantee of future results, it's the way the smart money would bet. So what I want most from any 
mechanical content coming out of Wizards of the Coast is open playtests and massive open feedback, just like they did for D&D Next. Mm -hmm. They did it for the original rules. They can absolutely do it for the supplements. Sure, sure. And I think, you know, uh, Unearthed Arcana is kind of a good example of them continuing that open playtest spirit. Obviously, it's not as massive or as popular as the core rule playtest was, but I think that that is a good step in the right direction. The thing is, the Unearthed Arcana stuff scares the boots off of me, because if most of that stuff got into the general play population, it would be terribly unbalancing. So that has not reassured me at all. Go ahead, Ben. Well, that's that's why you need to read the content and playtest it if you can, preferably with a home group that is not eventually legal because none of the Unearthed Arcana is eventually legal. But I think that's the point, is that they're putting it out there, getting people's opinions, and they're putting out surveys. And I, for one, you know, wrote a scathing survey review of the most recent version of the Mystic, and I'm just like, no, this does not belong. This is too has too many problems, and it's too flexible, and it fills in way too many gaps, and it's way better than most of the classes that are out there. And I think that's what they're doing by putting it out there to playtest. So it relies on you, Paige Lightman, and everyone on this podcast and everyone that's listening to this podcast, that that's not what they want to go and answer the survey and say, no. Sure. And I think the same thing is true. Uh, you know, if you look at the very last public playtest packet, um, there were still a lot of problems in there versus what they actually came out with in uh, fourth edition, which is uh, pretty, pretty great. So what I wanted to say is that I'm in a home game right now that's using a lot of the Unearthed Arcana stuff because we like the flavor of it. So, like, I'm playing a Warforged Barbarian, and uh, my friend is playing uh, – he took a level or two of the Mystic Scion, and then uh, we decided that he couldn't take any more levels because it was a little overpowered, and he had to find another tutor, and they're only on, like, other planes of existence, so he had to go questing for one. So he took levels of Monk instead after that. Um, and somebody else is playing the new version of the Ranger. And we're just – we're finding that they're – differently overpowered in little ways and and trying to fix things as we go and and so like i like that the options are sort of there i just wish more time and energy was put into those options uh before they were put out there because yeah it's it's great for home groups to do a lot of work to fix things but i, I wish we didn't have to so i honestly god can't believe i'm about to say the following phrase but i agree with everyone <laughs> um <laughs> So oh, no, is, I feel dirty. <laughs> I know you should. You should feel really dirty. Uh, there is a pretty extensive playtest network behind the scenes that um, signs, you know, stacks and stacks of NDAs um, with Wizards and Hasbro, and they are playtesting. It's nowhere near as big as we had when we were doing Next by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but that that is being there. It is being playtested, and all that stuff that's coming out in the hardbounds uh, – and from the you know the Sword Coast Adventures and that kind of stuff is all being play tested behind the scenes. I think the I think Paige isn't wrong. I think that the only way to get true Nirvana, for lack of a better term, is to do a big open play test. But I think the fear of that or the 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 skittishness of that would be they're they're giving away their product for free, and they've got to really uh, make it so that they can. Make a make profit off it, whether we think that's good or not. So I think that that's what's stopping them from doing 
I'll use I'll use Sword Coast Adventures as, as an example, right? That them giving that out as, as a public playtest for any period of time before they publish the book or any other crunch like that. I think that's what's stopping them is them not wanting to continue to give away so much for free. I mean, they gave us so much already in the basic rule, the basic DM, and then now in the SRD. I think I think personally, and I have nothing to back it up, but I think personally that's what I think is happening. So I do agree that uh, that they are doing some playtesting, absolutely. Um, however, look at what came out in Sword Coast Adventures Guide. Green Flame Blade and Booming Blade. Mm. The two cantrips that nobody can be without. So we've already seen how power creepy that can be. And in fact, for League Play, the League Adventures League had to go through and carefully prune back a lot of options in Skag, its Sword Coast Adventures Guide, to make it playable on a mass system. Like, no Tieflings can't fly and all that. No, you can't be an Azrakoko. They removed, like, three things. And Azrakoko were in Elemental Evil Oh, you're right, guide. you're right, you're right, you're like, right. Elemental Evil. Most, most of that went through. However, very little of that was crunch from that book. Yeah. And things they added were not to classes that needed it. Cough, cough, ranger. Right, right. But regardless, we saw in Sword Coast Adventures Guide, it's got the two cantrips that you absolutely must have. They are far better than anything in the PHB. Like, this is not a great trajectory. Uh, so, Ben, what do you think we would need in a big 5e mechanical update? So, uh, well, first of all, I don't think it needs to be big. Um, I think that Sword Coast Adventures Guide set a really great precedent for doing a lot of flavor with a minimum amount of crunch, but that crunch still had a certain impact and provided a lot of options. Some of the options weren't so great. The, um, for instance, the Purple Dragon Knight for the fighter is pretty super weak sauce compared to a lot of the other options in the book. But the uh, both of the rogue options that were presented, uh, the new Paladin Oath of the Crown and playing one in a game, and it's... I mean, it's, it's different, certainly, and it looks a little weaker on paper, but it, if that's the type of character you want to play, it works really well. Um, there are classes that certainly need to be fixed before we delve into new classes or new races. Like, as I just, you know, casually mentioned, I think the Ranger still needs a lot of love, and it was really surprising to me that they had put out in Unearthed Arcana a number of options for the Ranger, and none of them made it into Skag. Instead, we got bonuses for classes that, you know... I, I like all the classes, having played almost all of them. I still haven't made a sorcerer uh, because I don't like sorcerers thematically. <laughs> but I've played just about every other class. And for the most part, they're you know pretty good at what they do. And all of it is a little bit different. And I don't think we need to be adding those on without fixing some of the problems that we have currently. So to sum up, not a, not a big book, but to add more flavor and some crunch... Uh, and to fix the problems we currently have rather than introducing new ones that fill, as as Mike Merle said in there, looking to fill gaps. I don't think that we should be making new classes to fill gaps. We should be filling gaps with the classes we already have with options, even if that's adding two or three new classes for the two or three new archetypes, rather, for a ranger or for the warlock, which has some... A couple things that are really good and a couple things that are very multi-attribute dependent that are very hard to pull off without going and searching for the right magic items. And in Adventurers League, they frown very heavily on that. So it's almost like you're frowning very heavily on certain class archetypes. So 
Sure, sure. Well, and I think, you know, I think one reason we didn't see that Ranger stuff come out is because they weren't happy with the playtest feedback, right? Um, mm. So I think that's a good sign that they're not trying to rush anything, uh, that if they're not happy with something, they're going to try real hard to not put it out. And I also feel like, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about gaps, but I also, you know, I, I want to see psionics and I want to see, I want to see some more stuff. And I, like I said, I don't necessarily have to use it. I think 5e has given us the agency as DMs to, to disallow things. And I think the Adventurers League team obviously has a lot of great people who are going through and, and banning stuff and, and looking for that kind of thing. But I would love to see some more stuff come out of it. I've, I very sadly have to disagree about the Adventurers League banning a lot of stuff. They've banned a couple things, which were like broken level, broken at certain levels. Like, you know, flight is a problem, totally. especially when you're low level, unless you get the boots of flying that are available in one of the very prominent Adventures League modules that I will not name because I don't want to get in trouble with admins because admins, I love you and you're the best. Hmm. But I think that. Uh, if you put it in print, there's a certain prerogative or a certain requirement, rather, that it will have to, in one way, shape, or form, end up in the Adventures League. And at that point, you end up getting bloated, like, 4th edition or, like, 3.5. Or uh, as many complaints I've heard from friends of mine that play Pathfinder, I do not play it. So if angry Pathfinders want to send me a message saying, no, Pathfinder's perfect, then I don't know. But I've just heard friends of mine say that you need 87 books in order to make a character that's halfway decent. And I don't want that, and I'm really afraid of that having experienced it in previous editions, especially in Adventures League, where it's like, oh, you know, or rather, not Adventures League, let me say Living Forgotten Realms, where, oh, well, you know, the newest edition of Dragon Magazine has something that has really just ridiculously good with the stuff that I've got, so I need to build my character to take that, regardless of what the flavor is, because those power gamers are out there. And the more stuff you add, the more opportunities you have for the system to break. We'll see what sort of mechanical update they're talking about soon enough, I imagine. Uh, and we'll see how big and how broken it is. Uh, but I hope that uh, what everybody's saying about there being lots of flavor uh, and lots of story to go along with everything is certainly uh, certainly correct. Let's move on, uh, since we are already talking about the Adventurers League. Uh, I want to talk about the Adventurers League and sort of how it's evolved over the last, uh, you know, year and a half plus since D&D 5th Edition has come out uh, and what things have uh, have been like for everybody. Uh, so, uh, Joe, why don't we start with you? Um, you know, a while ago we did a podcast where we talked kind of about the state of the Adventurers League and, uh, and how everything was going in organized play in the store. It sounded like things were going really well at your store, Modern Myths. Uh, mm -hmm. how are things going now and have they changed? And if so, why do you think that is? Uh, well, we have in general, and I, I can't speak for every store, but I know there are a number of stores that uh, my my uh, my store owner is online with a lot of different other store owners and whatnot, and, and he says he, he hears a lot of this from them as well, uh, is that um, numbers have dropped. And uh, from a just sort of conceptual standpoint, looking at the way – uh, things have been provided to stores. It feels like uh, organized play in a store setting is being um, 
less supported, I guess. Uh, it, I mean, if you look back to fourth edition, again, I, I don't want to harp on this, but organized play in fourth edition stores got printed packets with printed maps and custom dice for all the players. And they were even, they were doing those, those, uh, DM uh, or dungeon card things that you could yep. use as like extra rules. Cool. And, and so the more times you came to an organized play session, the more points you got, the more likely you are to get a special card that would give you some minor little bonus at some random point in the game. And that was kind of cool. And that was great. And then we got into the playtest version of fifth ed and the adventures stopped having, uh, as many things with them. Uh, and the maps started getting cut down and then the adventures themselves, uh, didn't have sort of the week by week layout that we were used to. And, and that was more work for DMs and a lot of DMs at stores, uh, had to do a lot of extra writing. I spent hours and hours rewriting a lot of those adventures so that we could have the same experience at every one of our tables, uh, every week. And then fifth edition came out and it was just sort of a, well, here's a big adventure of where you're supposed to go. And it's actually just the first two chapters of this, uh, Hard, hardcover book that you could buy and there's no actual story arc to it that will give you a, a good ending for your players in store but uh go ahead and run this and so we did again trying to break things up week by week in a way that made sense while also getting the uh the expeditions adventures which were sort of a different it was kind of encounters in one place and expeditions in the other uh and the expedition adventures uh Many of those were very great, and we know many of the people that have written a lot of those, um, and they were great adventures, uh, but focus for those seemed very different than the focus for encounters. And now recently, we've, we've read that they're removing D&D encounters as a thing that's going to happen, and they are still providing the, uh, the expedition adventures, or they're still creating the expedition adventures, but in the past... Originally, stores got printed things for free. Then stores got PDFs for free. Now stores are going to have to start paying for adventures on the DMs Guild. And those same adventures will be available to everyone else that wants to pay the same amount. So anyone that wanted the cool adventures that you might get in the store can now just go to the DMs Guild and run them at home, and they have no reason to go to the store. Uh, So that, I, I feel like is going to drive down numbers at stores because there's fewer reasons for people to go to stores. There's not a lot of products coming out and say what you will about the quality of, of, you know, splat books and things. Yeah, there were plenty of crappy splat books that came out, but as long as product is coming out, people want to come in and buy it. People want to come in and see it. They want to try it out. And if you've got nothing coming out or if everything comes out on the website where you don't have to go to a store to get it, it keeps people from wanting to go to the store. Uh, I know I'm getting kind of soapboxy here, so I don't want to. I don't want to preach too much. Well, but uh, so, so what is the? Has it affected your store? Have you seen less people attending? Our our store, my, my my store in Western Massachusetts, um, at the height of fourth edition, we we had uh, four tables going uh, for encounters, sometimes turning people away because we had seven or eight players at each table. Uh, now I am lucky to get three players at one table, uh, and so that's. That's the reality of it for me. All right, Joe. A couple quick things. Yes. Just so we make sure that we're all we all understand this. That for season four, which is the Curse of Strahd, mm-hmm. stores do not have to pay for adventures. If you haven't gotten your password for your adventures, talk to me and I'll put you in touch with the right person. Okay. And they are offering to stores and to conventions only the magical certs for those adventures as an incentive to get people to play in stores and or at conventions. 
Okay. Again, free. Now, everything else I don't disagree with you with, but I wanted to make sure that that fact was stated, that for this season, for season four, that the stores still have access to all of the, what we're calling, the, what they're being called, the D&D Adventures League modules. Mm-hmm are still free to the stores and to premier conventions. Regular conventions need to still go through a store to get them, but they're still free to them also. But there's been a lot of confusion. You're not the only one who has missed because there's been some misinformation or some changing or ever-evolving information. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure that straight up that was we, – we, we said that because I didn't want there to be an influx of Joe's wrong, so the whole podcast is wrong. You're right. You're uh, right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, uh, talk to me afterwards, and I'll make sure you, I'll get you in touch with the right person. To make sure yeah, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's good to know. And it is, uh, that's powerful, man, that you're getting lower numbers at your store, I think is, is certainly not a great thing. Ben, what's your experience been like, uh, with, uh, with fifth edition, uh, organized play? Uh, has, have things grown? Have things stayed the same? Have they gotten worse? So I'm in a unique position in that I don't – the events that I do at stores are game days rather than doing weekly encounters. That said, I do know a guy quite well who is in charge of organizing a weekly encounters at one of our nearby game days, and he's having the opposite problem. He is having new people show up every week, uh, and they're up to – they started with, I think, three tables, and they are up to seven tables, often at seven or eight players. Wow. Reporting six, I presume, though I have no dog in that fight, and therefore I cannot say anything, nor will I say the name of the store, though if you happen to go by <laughs> Gigabyte's Game Cafe in Atlanta uh, on Wednesdays, you should go there and play some D&D. Hmm. Uh, anyways. <laughs> it's a great I cafe. I used to go there, too. Yes, it's it's fabulous. And they have a new location, and they have a great kitchen, and uh, great people running D&D. Uh, but he's actually at the problem where he does not have enough DMs to keep up with player demand. Uh, and they've added more DMs as often as they can, and they're trying... They're actually in the process of training new DMs uh, to be able to keep up with the demand that is growing every week. So uh, I don't know if it's a southern thing, or if they're doing something really well with their advertising, or what, uh, but they're having the opposite situation in the weekly settings. Huh. Um, from the game day perspective uh we do game days usually once every couple months or so at that same location we also run conventions at uh various hotels around atlanta we have one coming up in i'm gonna say july and Paige is gonna correct me up oh, no july is the right right time uh we're actually gonna go through the entire curse of stride book over the weekend for i think we're up to eight or ten tables of dms and we haven't opened it up for players yet but uh, given that there's a, we have eleven DMs and we have a venue that will hold ten tables. Well, then, so uh, we're we're lucky in that regard. Uh, but we work really hard to cultivate our our audience. We spend a lot of time on Facebook. We spend a lot of time with email newsletters. We spend a lot of time uh, doing advertising and reaching out to the player base and letting them know that events are happening and letting them know that there are places they can play and that there are opportunities to do stuff that they normally couldn't do in stores, for instance, play through all of Curse of Strahd, because we know you can only do a certain amount on any given Wednesday, and a number of Wednesdays and happen until the next book comes out, and then every store is set with the problem of, do I keep running the old content? Do we start with the new content? Yada, yada. Um but I'm starting to digress, so let me wander back to the topic I was on. We have more players showing up than we ever had 
um, for our game days and conventions. We're getting people that are coming from out of state regularly who know who we are and know what stuff we run and the stuff that we run is good and fair and that we find good DMs. And we're really, we work really hard on it, but we're really blessed to have a really strong community um, that we have done a lot of work for. And we're having a, Topher used to be our RC, um, and that has changed over to Ginny Love Day. And she is hot in the saddle and is doing a really good job of getting more LCs and growing the community. Um, and it's just the complete opposite story in the southeast. So maybe we're maybe we're just uh, it's it's the stodgy New Englanders. It's our Puritan backgrounds. That's uh... <laughs> I I don't even know. I actually I've been thinking long and hard about the Atlanta success with the Indie Adventures League and wondering why it works for Atlanta but hasn't worked for Birmingham. Mm. There's not much of an organized play community in Birmingham or Jacksonville. Yeah, they're in South Florida, but some, but not much at all. And I'm wondering why Atlanta is different. And I, I don't honestly know. But one thing I know is super important is we have a absolutely badass crew of really fabulous GMs around here. And as a convention organizer, Ben and I cannot give them enough love or enough stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we try to give them something. We we are not able to give them a whole lot of stuff because we actually for our last game day were like hundreds of dollars in the hole. Um, but it's a part of growing that community, and that's a cost that we're willing to pay. And thankfully, we have jobs that can allow us to book Ooh. hotels where we're like, all right, we're not going to make money this time or next time, but after that, hopefully, we'll make money and we'll spread enough word of mouth. Um, but. We're also not operating a store like Joe is, so that's certainly a thing. Because yeah. I'm sure Joe can't be like, well, I'm going to run a convention, and I'm going to lose hundreds of dollars on the first one or two of them, and then it's going to take off. Because that is that is not – that is something that I'm very – like I, I'm very keen that we're operating at a loss at the moment, but that's kind of a cost of growing the community. Yeah, I mean, but I we're imagine also, not just Joe, but, but many people uh, are not oh, yes. able to do that. You know? No, it's it's tough for the store owners. Yeah. There, there's because nobody. I mean, it goes to the great truth of this thing. Nobody does role playing games as a store owner, as an author, as anything to make that loot. You're far better getting a college degree and and working in management somewhere. Yep. Sure. Um, um, but one last thing, and I know that I've rambled for quite a while, but I think another thing that plays into it is the two of us uh, organized Dragon Con last year. And by doing that, we were able to expand the number of people that we knew that were players and DMs uh, throughout the Southeast. Because Dragon we got Con, a lot of names on the mailing list at DragonCon. Mm. DragonCon is a, a big event for Huge. not really gaming, but gaming has had a growing presence there, and we've been very lucky to have a uh, opportunity there to grow the community. Uh, admittedly, again, we say lucky, but there is. I don't know how much cursing I can do here, but you can insert your favorite expletive to the amount of work that is done to make Dragon Con fly as well as it does. <laughs> well, and I think, uh, you know, the other thing about Dragon Con is even if people aren't there for games, they might be a nerd about something else who is a little die curious. Um, who, uh, oh, <laughs> uh-huh, see what ooh, I mean? ooh, oh, well I done. <laughs> you get inspiration. Um, and, and it's certainly a great t- chance for them to be like, oh, you know, on my way to my Joss Whedon panel, I see we got some people over here signing up for a really fun D&D game. Eh, maybe I'll get on that mailing list, see what it's all about. So, yep. um, you know, yep. I think that's very smart of you guys as well. Um, 
Topher, you are on the game side of things in Atlanta. You are always at Titans Games and Comics, as listeners of this show know. Uh, how are things going at Titans? Uh, we checked in probably about a year ago. Things were going strong. Things were going really well. How are things now? I, I, they're going well. Um, we have uh, – it's that part of the Atlanta community. We have – we're running three full tables on Wednesday night of Curse Strahd. We have a fourth table that's doing – a. Uh, kind of their own thing. And then we have two tables on Saturdays running Curse of Strahd, and they're all full. I could do more if I had more space and more DMs. I have a waiting list every Wednesday and every Saturday. Uh, so it's a, so that's part of the issue is for us is doing that. Um, uh, so uh, I have a question for everyone on the panel. J- uh, James, may I ask the panel question? Of course, question? of course. Go right ahead. And, and, and Mr. Joe, uh, I would like you to answer this question last. Absolutely. When I say Adventures League play, what do you think of? Who do you want to go first? Ben? <laughs> oh, all right. Well, since I asked. Um, so for us, Adventures League play means, by and large, either the modules or, uh, as we have coming up in July, the actual book. We have not done a lot of actual book content, uh, other than we have written with uh, Robert Adushi's Blessing a couple of battle interactives that have taken selected portions out of previous books and taken sections out of them and made them an epic before you could order epics to be at your local game day or convention. Um, because you're able to modify, you're able to take book content and play it as part of Adventures League. So therefore, if you take book content, modify it slightly so that multiple tables can all be engaged in the same battle, then that should work, right? And uh, we posed that question, and we got a lot of pushback, but eventually we were very lucky to get a blessing from uh, the head admin that said, you know, as long as it's not turning into a loot grab or a money grab, uh, and you're not playing certain portions of the book just to get the best items, then, you know, go forth and and do awesome and we've been very lucky to do that so uh but to answer that question uh very heavily modified versions of the book and mostly the adventures league modules page so adventures league is many things to many people and i i would like to expand beyond ben's definition so again it's play of modules in stores it's play of hardback content or expeditions in stores it is play of the modules and con- and hardback content using the D&D Adventures League rules in homes and it's as well as uh in conventions and game days so it's many different places and it's many different types of content but the critical feature is are you playing under the character creation guidelines and under the play guidelines given by the uh adventures league players guide the adventures league dm's guide that's the critical feature joe so i i I hear adventures league play and i think of what it used to be and what uh i've seen it become i i really i i think of uh D&D Encounters as the core vessel for uh, Adventures League play, at least uh, at our store, because Wednesdays were our more frequent, uh, constant D&D day. And then we started doing uh, the other modules, the Expeditions modules. Uh, for a while it was on Mondays, then it was on Thursdays. And we got maybe one group of the same couple of people that kept coming to those, and they almost formed almost their own sort of party uh, that tried to go through uh, through those sort of adventures. But the general use of Adventures League play to try and get people into our store to play D&D has been D&D Encounters. Uh, and that 
obviously is going to have to change now that encounters is ending, but that's for, for the past many months, that has been my perception of adventures that you play. And that's why I asked you to go last year, because that's in my mind, what I thought now, as Ben said, I used to be the regional coordinator for the Southeast. I've recently stepped down. Uh, Jenny, who's from Knoxville has taken over and she's been doing an incredible job. Um, and I am fully supportive of the Adventures League. I'm fully supportive of all of the admins, of all of the RCs and LCs. These people do tireless, unpaid work and get a lot of more abuse than you think they do. And they are doing, in my mind, God's work, spreading the word of what I consider one of the greatest games ever created. Mm-hmm. That said, I believe that, they, that, I, that Wizards of the Coast has turned their back on organizing play to get more new players to play the game by abandoning the encounter system. Yes, absolutely. And... And I think that the Adventures League, because of that, now believes that and has for the last season and a half, if not two seasons, that Adventures League play was the modules that you played at conventions or what we called expeditions. So, James, I say all of that to answer your original question is mm-hmm. that we're doing really great and we're playing through um, Death House and we're going to play into the hardbound book and people are really excited about it because they want to play that content. But I was up front with them and said, we're going to finish season three with uh, of expeditions before we get to season four adventures league modules and we may not get the season four adventures modules at all because by the time they're done with season three because they only play once a month on saturdays i mean on sundays that's the only room the store has that we may skip season four altogether so go play and page and ben's Atlanta game day go play at cons go play in other words because i believe that's where that kind of content belongs and that adventures league at its core is about encounters and encounters is at core is about growing that the hobby and getting more players. And I think that they have done a massive disservice to the community and abandon it in a way that is going to be, uh, have repercussions that they can't see yet. And I want to be really clear. I'm saying this as a, just a guy who plays and happens to coordinate at the store. I have no affiliation with adventures league at all anymore. Uh, so, Currently, there are, what, 15 people working at Wizards of the Coast full-time? I remember when there were 15 people working on the organized play program, uh, and there, there was, like, a Twitter account that would put out extra things that would happen all the time. And, there, you know, there were people specifically designing things just to get new players in, make them feel like heroes, and get them excited about buying books. And that doesn't feel like what organized play in the D&D mindset is anymore. And I, I think that's... At least in my experience, I've seen that hurting a store. So it's a little terrifying, uh, though true, that the entirety of this hobby that I love so dearly is held in the hands of, I don't even think it's 15 people anymore, man. I think it's less than that. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. Um, and, and, I mean, the reasons for that are purely economic, and I don't blame wizards for it. They've got to make their money for their shareholders just like everybody else. Uh, compared to the money they get from Magic, mm-hmm. D&D is a labor of love. Like, they, they are not making money on it, or they're probably not making much money on it, particularly in comparison to Magic. So it's got a very limited staff of people who can play test, who can interact with the community, which is why this community and this sport, if you will, uh, is absolutely reliant on the passion of volunteers. And it's just a scary place to be. I mean, it's just a scary place to be. If we lose enough of those good volunteers, if they get burned out, if they get alienated by wizards, if bad things happen, or if good things happen, they have babies and can't deal with this stuff anymore. This hobby is not that far from extinction, actually. I don't disagree with you, Paige, but I think that the other side of that coin, the, the side of the coin that 
that only the people who like ourselves, who are very active in the community see, is that it seems to me that Wizards of the Coast is actively working against the Adventures League admin, eventually crew. Case in point, the um, Death House was publicized as being exclusive for in-store play only. And, you know, the only place to play it was in stores, a launch event. And this is the reason to go to your store. And they, so then the admins put it out to all the stores and then, oh, and now it's in Dragon Plus for free yeah, for clear, everybody. Clearly the AL admins got taken by surprise yeah. by that. And, and, you know, the amount of different information that's come out about whether or not cons can get stuff for free or not for free. Whether or not the certs were going to be available or not available, whether or not we had a prime example earlier, whether or not a store has to pay for or not pay for. It's, I don't blame, again, the admins and the RCs and the LCs doing God's work. I think they're fighting an uphill battle against what Wizards doing to them. And I think it's, it's becoming more and more frustrating. And I see the frustration and I hear the frustration. It is, uh, one of uh, a litany of reasons why I thought it was the best time for me to walk away because I couldn't give the time and the energy I wanted. To, to help grow the Southeast. And so they felt like that this is happening. And I, I, I think that until those things change, there's only a downward spiral, I'm sorry to say. So let me let me throw this out there then to you guys. Uh, you know, we're doing a, a, certainly a lot of uh, good things. I think we're, we're praising uh, all of the right people who are really giving their time and energy. And I do think Wizards of the Coast is a couple of people who maybe are not in a great financial spot. And they're still trying to figure out how to make that work. Uh, that being said, Joe uh, certainly works as hard on his organized play <laughs> uh, experience uh, as anyone I know, if not harder. Um, and Joe, just to be clear, like, yeah, you do work at this store, but you're not getting paid for all of the extra hours you're sitting at home rewriting no, adventures no. and and doing extra bits for for your players and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, and I, it sounds like... Paige and Ben, you guys work super hard. You're out there doing what Topher and I call the Lord's work. Um, you know, bringing D&D to the people, spending your own money. Uh, we know Topher is, is working very hard. I've been to Paige and Ben's events. They're incredible. They're well run. The secret mission con they did was I thought was incredibly well done. I thought that was a really fun event. I, you know, Dragon Con was great. And I know I've been the benefactor of Joe's great work. I think that that's part of the problem is the fact that the, the days of people being able to walk into a store on Wednesdays with a pencil and say, I want to play D&D and sit down and be able to integrate it in the story or to be able to have someone miss a couple of weeks and come back and have to sit at a different table are gone because it's not set up that way anymore. It's set up to be, for lack of better terms, a home game. So then I think the final question as we go out here is, People out there who are listening, who want to help out at their local friendly game store, who maybe want to go check out their local friendly game store, start something there. Um, what are some things that they can do short of spending hundreds of dollars or, or spending a lot of hours rewriting a game? Like, what are some of the best things to do? Uh, and I will start. I think the best, some of the best things to do are to show up, bring friends, and buy something when you're in the store because they will appreciate it and want to have you come back, even if that thing is a little something. So those are my kind of three things that people can do to encourage that. Uh, Paige, what do you think? So the most important thing you can do if you're interested in being a, a producer uh, of Dungeons and Dragons rather than a consumer, like somebody like Joe or Topher produces games, like they facilitate games. Other people, all they do is they just play Dungeons and Dragons, they never build. 
if you want to be a builder or a producer or somebody who makes stuff happen, the first thing you need to do is you need to reach out to the people who are out there. And you don't know who that is, but you can look it up on the internet. You can look it up on Facebook. Start talking to people to see who the D&D Adventures League folks in your area is and say, how can I help? Because believe me, I could, I've got a list, a really long list of way people can help if anybody wants to, to show up and help. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. Uh, ben, what do you think? So I'm going to have to agree with what Paige said. I think that while the DM Guild is a great way to put out more content um, and it's a great way to share your ideas with the community, I think that to really grow the community, you have to get out there and offer to help and meet new people and really just um, do what you can to be the go-to person. And as someone that's done a lot of volunteering, especially when I was between jobs for a couple of years, it's a lot of getting out there and putting yourself kind of on a limb and trying to meet people and trying to help things move along and doing what you can and learning hey, I'm not very good at this, and I need to get better. And that can turn into a marketable skill. And I'm sure that's not necessarily what a lot of people are thinking when they're like, oh, well, when I want to sit down and roll some dice, I want to sit down and roll some dice. But, you know, you're learning a lot of skills when you play, when you DM, that lead to better team building, better socializing, and things like that. And not to get too deep into the... D&D has a lot of great applicable skills that you can use in a real-life job. Um, <laughs> but it does. But it does, and that volunteering experience will help you not only be a better uh, person if you're looking for a job, because I know a lot of gamers are, uh, so I guess I'm kind of using this soapbox opportunity to speak out to them, uh, but it's also a great opportunity to meet new people and make new opportunities and just to do that work rather than sitting back and doing the writing or sitting back and criticizing that things aren't perfect the way they are with whatever bothers you about any given book or adventure. Uh, Topher, what do you think that people can do? They can do exactly what everybody has said. I think they should go to cons and go to stores and play D&D and bring their friends with them and get to know them and be part of that community. Be the community. We've said that word a hundred times this podcast, but that's so important. Spend money at the stores. Yeah, you could probably get that book or that mini or whatever cheaper on Amazon, but if you keep buying that stuff on Amazon, then that store is not going to be there and where are you going to play D&D at, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. You, you need to do that, and that's a tough lesson in, in the economy, especially as Ben pointed out. The uh, I, I know lots and lots of gamers who are in between jobs or not in jobs that they're happy with, so uh, I don't want people to obviously spend money they don't have, but if you have the resources, support the local friendly gaming stores. Um, on top of that, if you're interested in getting really involved, I know every single RC is looking for more local coordinators. Go on your on the either the the, the Adventures League Facebook page or the one for your area in the country, and just ask. Um, ben, I think said earlier that Ginny has grown the southeast immensely. Uh, she did a, a fantastic job where I could not. Done it as quick as she did. She, she's been kicking butt and taking names. And I know that all the other regions are, are constantly looking for that kind of help. It's a commitment. It's a time commitment. But if you're one of those people who likes to be on the inside looking out, then it's uh, it's not a bad thing. I think you also should DM, DM, DM. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable DMing, figure out how to DM. We ran a thing at Titans for a while that about halfway through the last season, we have a player at a table expressing intention to DM. I swap places with them or the DM swap places with them. 
So they ran one session. I sat with them and helped them prep, but they ran one session with me at the table. So it wasn't quite so scary and it went pretty fantastic. So I think those are the things. And uh, Joe Lestowski, uh what do you think people can do to help grow the community, uh, specifically around local friendly game stores? Well, I think the biggest thing, and I know that many of the people that used to come to our store found home groups that they liked, and they went to those and stopped coming to the store because they were playing their home game, and that's great. I think that's that's been a part of D&D since its inception is home games and things, but I think to, to keep the community going and to also – uh, keep a variety in your life, just showing up at stores and saying that you want to play and finding new people to play with. I mean, yes, yes, you know, learning to DM is great and, and um, you know, becoming, you know, becoming a, a volunteer and whatnot. All of that is wonderful too. But even just sitting down at a table with people that have never played with you before and sharing your play style with them and sort of expanding everyone's perception of, what it's like to play D&D with different people. I mean, D&D is at its core a social storytelling exercise, and I think the more people you sit down to be social with as you tell these stories, the better those stories are going to get. And so I think for for – we've had a lot of soapbox moments here, but I think for D&D to survive, I think for the hobby to flourish – uh, we really need people reaching out to one another to find new ways to tell those stories together in interesting fashions. Well said. Well said. Well, I think all four of you are extremely smart, intelligent people. Uh, thank you so much for all of the work that you are all doing for your various areas. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see a year from now what the state of organized play is. So I hope you will all come back to the roundtable then so we can talk about it some more. In the meantime, let's see what you think out there in listener land. We want to know what you think about the latest D&D survey. How much crunch do you want in a new 5 ebook? And we also want to know what do you think about the state of organized play? How are things at your local friendly game store? Are they booming? Are they not? What would you do to fix it if it weren't? Let us know over in the show notes at the tomeshow.com for this episode or at facebook.com slash the tome show. And before we go, let's find out where you can find all of these lovely people. Topher Cohan, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on the Facebook at Topher Cohan, K-O-H-A-N. They can also find me on the Twitter at Topher A-T-L, T-O-P-H-E-R-A-T-L. And um, as has been said here multiple times every Wednesday night, I'm at Titan Game to Comics in Smyrna, Georgia, where I help coordinate uh, Adventures League there. I also coordinate a bunch of other games for them. So if you're interested in gaming, you live in the Smyrna or the western, the the south, uh, the northwestern part of the Atlanta area, come join us. And I just want to say that uh, in six years of knowing Topher, this is the first time I have pronounced his last name correctly all night. So uh, I feel <laughs> proud of myself for that. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say anything till afterwards. I didn't want to jinx it. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Joe Lestowski, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Joe Lestowski. Uh, I also am frequently found at uh, Modern Myths, Comics, and Games in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, you can find a schedule of our various D&D stuff and other events at modern-myths.com. Uh, and um, that's pretty much all I have to say about that. <laughs> uh, Paige, where can people find you? You can get me on the Book of Faces at www.facebook.com backslash P-A-I-G-E, 
dot lightman spelled l like lima e like echo i like indigo t like tango m like mike a like alpha in like november or on twitter at at page lightman excellent excellent and where can people find you ben heisler Right. Uh, so you can usually find me uh, lurking or posting in the Adventures League Southeast or the Adventures League Metro Atlanta Facebook groups. Um, the moderators there are pretty super quick at approving people to talk about D&D stuff. Um, and the other place you can find me is on the Twitters, uh, which is at Zentarum, like the well misunderstood group of do-gooders throughout the Adventures <laughs> League. Um, so anyways, at Zentarum PR, so Z- at Zentarum, like the faction, and then P as in the letter, and then R as in the letter, as in public relations, because even the bad guys need a good messaging system out there. In addition, at Titan Games, uh, one of the Atlanta local coordinators, who is uh, Sarah Zuckerman, um, is running uh, two How to Be a DMs. And if you're one of those people that has been interested in DMing or you're at a store where you're having to turn people away because you don't have enough DMs, but you have people that are interested and want to grow that skill set, and you happen to be in the southeast slash Atlanta area, uh, one of the Atlanta local coordinators is running a event to teach you basically Dungeon Mastering 101. And uh, there is one going on at Titan Games, which is Topher's store, or rather the store that Topher frequents, which is on April 28th at 7 p.m. And then is doing another one in South Atlanta at Treefort Games on May 21st. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes, but it's a great kind of outreach way to teach people how to DM so that we can have more players in this community and grow the community as we've talked about a number of times. Certainly the greatest Twitter handle there is. Well, thank you all so much for being on the round table today. All right, let's roll that interview with Dan Dillon and Stephen Rowe of the four horsemen. Their Kickstarter for the talented bestiary is already underway. I think we say that it drops the day this podcast drops, but the timetable moved up. So go check it out right now. There's a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes over at thetomeshow.com. Okay, everybody. Now I am here with the four horsemen, or two of the four horsemen, I should say. I'm here with Dan Dillon and Stephen Rowe. Guys, welcome to the roundtable. Hey, James. Hey, thanks Glad for having to be here. on again. Oh, of course, of course. It's great to have you guys. You guys are the best guests. I love having you. We always have a great time. Thank you. Uh, So (laughs) we're here to talk about the Talented Bestiary, which we talked a little bit about the last time all four of you were here. Stephen Rowe, I know this is your baby, but if people (laughs) miss that podcast or they need a little bit of a refresher, what is the Talented Bestiary? Well, uh... Talented, uh, the Talented series was created by Owen Stevens and Genius Games, and uh, the overall idea of the series is to take uh, character classes, PC classes, uh, put them into a blender, shake them up with all the archetypes, uh, options that you have for the various classes, and then put it in a book where everything becomes an option uh, through talents and edges. So, you know, you can play a, a melee fighter witch or a a monk who uses spell-like abilities to uh, to a vast degree, and uh, essentially it frees up character creation so that anything is possible. Um, the talented bestiary takes that same idea with monster creation, 
because the the monster creation process it, it's uh it's complicated there's a lot of guess and checking uh there's a bunch of different tables that you have to balance between uh and that doesn't even go into the fact that uh, creating abilities for monsters balanced abilities for monsters uh is an extremely difficult process even for designers that have been uh doing this for a very long time so the talented best series kind of first off, frees, uh, makes everything a lot simpler, frees everything up, and uh, gives you a, a much more you know, step-by-step process for creating a monster so that you don't have to worry so much about that end of things and can focus more on uh, the story aspects, uh, the creativity of, of taking your ideas and making them into a creature so that you can just uh, run it for an, an encounter. Uh, that way you're not spending hours and hours crafting a single antagonist that your PCs are just supposed to destroy. Nice. I like that a lot. So it's a, it's a big toolkit for making monsters, right? Um, yes, and, exactly. <laughs> and <laughs> what is amazing about that is you really got in there and broke down the math in a way that like a monster manual or a dungeon master's guide or, you know, whatever has never really broken down. It's always kind of like, you know, here's, here's advice on reskinning your monsters. Here's a few abilities <laughs> you can maybe add and what it'll do to the challenge rating. But we've never seen anything that really breaks things down to this level and makes it this easy to build a monster. So how much work has gone into this? <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I wasn't keeping track, which is probably a good thing, but hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of my time. Uh, it, took, it took months of initial uh, just going through the bestiaries, uh, picking out monsters and just breaking them down into their component parts to try to figure out, you know, the, the underlying patterns of monster creation and then making that work with, uh, you know, the, the recommended statistics uh, per CR for a monster. And, and I mean, on top of that, then you have size changes, which throw a gigantic wrench into things. I, oh, I mean, there's no, nice. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no like set precedent for, well, what happens if you take this medium sized creature and make it colossal? Well, what is, <laughs> what exactly does that just do to its challenge rating? I mean, there are, there are recommendations for what it does to the statistics, but is that really, does that equate to that challenge rating increase? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then, and then, what do you do to its abilities? Do you just leave them as is and increase the save DCs? Uh, so, so yeah, it it, uh, it it helps really looking at at monsters that are all kind of the same type because they have a lot of underlying similarities. And then uh, you can just kind of look at it from the challenge rating perspective of, well, this is what like a devil looks like at this challenge rating. This is what a devil looks like at this challenge rating. How do those two compare to each other? Uh, but yeah, a, a lot of work, <laughs> a, a lot of work and a lot of spreadsheets, um, VLOOKUP and equations and all sorts of stuff to try to, to try to get this figured out. So it's not like Paizo had a bunch of these documents and they were like, here are the keys to the monsters and this is how we made them. <laughs> you basically reverse engineered everything that was there. Well, I tried to. And, and you know, Paizo inherited a lot of the, the monster creation stuff from, from the previous editions. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, I think Paizo did a really good job of sticking to the pattern so that everything kind of fits. But, but yeah, just, just going through and trying to figure it out with, with the understanding that there might not be like an underlying formula. You know, I just kind of have to, had to throw myself at it and see if I could figure it out. And I think that I did. And I think that the system works. Nice. And we certainly play tested it enough 
that uh, I'm I'm confident that that you know anyone can pick this up, uh, make whatever monster they want, and with a little bit of practice and with a few of the other tools that we've included, uh, they can not only do it but they can do it very very quickly. So talk to me a little bit about the playtest process. About how many monsters did you make using this system? Uh, we've made uh, approximately 230 monsters. <laughs> so uh, I, I think I think of that I, I personally made about half, and then we had half a dozen different designers come in, uh, including Steve and Dan, uh, Victoria Jackson, uh, Clay Clouser, Daniel Mark, Daniel Marshall, uh, everybody coming in and getting hands-on experience with the system, uh, going through and trying to make monsters uh, that were uh, we, we stuck to trying to make variant monsters from the original bestiary. Uh, and trying to just uh, take new takes on the monsters, do variants, uh, significantly different challenge ratings. Uh, so, you know, make everything new again, but in, in such a way that, uh, that they, they're trying to, like, break the system. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of back and forth with uh, the various designers where they would be like, uh, you know, I want to make a tiny-sized construct, and it's not really working out for me. Uh, I think that there's this this issue with the system, and I think that this is how it could be improved. And so there's been a lot of tweaking, um, a, a lot of individual work, uh, and I think it gets it gets stronger. It got stronger with every monster that we created. Wow, that's awesome. So you guys have play tested this. It's been researched thoroughly. We should we should mention, right? You are doing a Kickstarter for yes. this book. Um, so what does the Kickstarter look like? Uh, this podcast is dropping the day that your Kickstarter launches. Um, so we are thinking good thoughts and I can't wait. To, uh, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I can't wait to get um, my own hands on this. So, uh, so what are you guys shooting for? What's your, your goal here? Well, considering that all of the primary writing is, is basically finished um, and, you, you know, the, the majority of people are going to be working based off of a, a percentage of, of the of the product sales. So, I mean, we're really just looking for a funding goal of $4,000 because we want uh, to get the the final editing, go through it with a, with a real fine-tooth comb. And we want to, like, try to get enough good art to... to make the book as beautiful as what we believe it deserves to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if I, if I don't make any money off of this, I'm okay with that. I just want to get this out into the world. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, it would be nice for you to get paid for your hours. And oh, hours sure. <laughs> uh, so uh, Naturally. <laughs> so $4,000, I think that's a, uh, you know, that's, that's not too unreasonable. What can people get uh, by, buying into this Kickstarter? Well, uh, we're going to be offering it in PDF, of course. Um, and, you know, at the at the very lowest backer level, um, people can, you know, be involved in the process. But we've also got a lot of uh, sneak peek products that are going to be available to anyone who backs at all, uh, which includes uh, the first couple of chapters of the books. Uh, so, uh, you know, how to create monsters, some examples, uh, how to, uh, the different ability breakdowns, uh, creature types, subtypes, everything. Uh, and we're also including a complete list of all of the monsters that are going to go into the final book, which, which have already been created, uh, and also a spreadsheet tool for monster creation. So, you know, even if, you, if you're just wanting to pledge like $3 to support the project, you get access to all of that uh, immediately. 
Uh, we're also having a, a pay what you want PDF that we're putting together. That's, you know, going to have the first chapter of the book, some sample monsters uh, that, you know, we can, we can distribute and everyone gets access. To. Uh, then, you know, with higher levels, you get access to PDF when it's finished, you get, uh, and then we're eventually going to have a order, order and print uh, uh, option for everyone at the, at the more expensive backer levels. And then, you, you know, at the, at the highest level stuff, you, you can, you can even contribute books or uh, monsters to the book uh, that anyone can do. Uh, you know, I think we even have one where you can, you can have dinner with us at Gen Con, we'll run a game for you. <laughs> with some of these monsters you've created. I yes, yes, of course. Like maybe we'll just make one at dinner that everyone can play with. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, what are some of the cool creatures you guys have designed using this? What do you What do you really love that you've made? Jeez. Uh, uh, well, as he said, we've got a couple hundred of these things so far, <laughs> and uh, it, it gets difficult to pick. Um, one of them that just that always just kind of jumped out at me. I'm not going to get to our favorite yet, Stephen. We'll get there in a second. Uh, <laughs> is the spinal centipede. <laughs> so this is this you know it's a it's a riff on the regular you know giant so small sized about the size of a dog centipede uh, and it can replace someone's spine. Uh, it can basically crawl into, devour their spine, and replace it, and then it animates the corpse of the creature like a zombie, right? <laughs> so, I, I mean, this is this hits some Resident Evil. This hits some of your uh, some of the other folklorish things that float around and, and get get dropped into pop culture every now and then. You know, you imagine you're fighting some things and you, you you kill the zombie and then a centipede bursts out of its chest and attacks you. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it, it, and that's just, that's just a very simple thing. Like you can take a monster that is essentially just a throwaway bug to fight. And then you can add uh, just incredible twists to them by pulling from a, this gigantic list of abilities and, you know, give it spells, whatever you need to do and just, and just shuffle the points around and then, and then make something cool. Um, one of my particular favorites that, uh, that I designed was a gargoyle, an intruder gargoyle. So everybody knows gargoyles can freeze and look like a statue. Uh, the intruder is more like a spire and assassin and it's refined its ability to where it can take the form of any stonework that's about its own, its own size and shape. Uh, or not not shape, but about its own size. Uh, and they have some sneak attack and some roguelike skills. And so this thing can slip into a castle and look like a column or, you know, that stone vase over there that has flowers in it. And, uh, you know, it can listen in on conversations. It can assassinate the king when he goes to, you know, get ready for bed. Lots of possibilities. The favorite ones that I got to work on, though, were the genies, and I got to work <laughs> on pretty heavily. And we came up, I came up with some really cool stuff, like the Corsair. I think so, yes. Yeah, the Corsair Merid, who uh, basically commandeers a pirate ship and sails it around the plains <laughs> and can plane shift her entire ship. Um, the Molten Blade Afridi, who is like just a hulking bruiser of an Afrit that uh, defends the city of brass and stuns things it hits and, you know, wields a giant sword and is bigger than a normal Afrit. Um, the plane runner Janny, they're like smugglers and thieves, and so they have abilities to to slip objects between the planes with their plane shift, so they can use secret chest and some other abilities that synergize with that. Uh, the slaver Shaitan, the Shaitan who uh, they raid into the material plane to take slaves for the, uh, their uh, mining operations on the elemental plane of Earth. Uh, and I think by and large, our favorite in the entire project has got to be the trickster Jin. 
I agree. <laughs> uh, the trickster gen, it was born out of one of my own DMing tactics where I'll throw a plot seed out there or some clues or something, you know, something strange is happening. The players don't know exactly what. And then I'll just sit back and I will listen to them bandy about what horrible things could be going on. And I will take notes because a lot of times they will come up with stuff that's way cooler than what I had planned originally. So I'll just be like, oh, that's horrible. Yeah, yeah, no, there's there's totally a, a, an ethereal werewolf. So the tricks gin is an ethereal gin that it hangs out, you know, invisible, intangible on the ethereal plane, listening to what people say until someone makes one of those off the cuff. Oh, God, I wish he would just go jump off a cliff. And then he says, your wish is my command. So it it kind of relies on, it gives the DM, or sorry, the the GM in-game agency to pull the trick that I do with my notes, right? (laughs) That's awesome. I'm bringing that into my game. Yeah, so so he hangs out, he listens to what people say, and then when people, when tempers flare, when people just kind of pop off at the mouth, he makes it happen. So until you know what's going on and, and you're very guarded about what you say and what you suggest might, might be happening because he can use wish, but only when someone else kind of speaks it and it doesn't actually have to be phrased like a wish. It just has to be phrased like any sort of desire and then he can make it happen whether they want it to or not. So that, uh, that, that just opens up a world of possibilities for, for messing with your players and creating some cool, interesting, you know, mystery leading into horrific storylines. You guys sent over the, the list of creatures that you've come up with. Well, for instance, there's a CR 16 pacifist trumpet archon. And like, I want to know more about how there's a CR 16 pacifist and what, you know, what, how's that going to affect my world? How's that going to change things? Cause obviously it's a creature of great power, um, that, that can do some interesting stuff. There's a world eater on keg. Uh, there's an ape God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You that. know, and this is just me <laughs> scrolling through the A section so far yeah. of, of what you've got. There's all kinds of great stuff. The the uh, virulent gray ooze swarm, you know, um, uh, uh, broke bone white. There's all kinds of things. That's, that, that's that, one of my favorites. The the thing on the cover is called the Armageddon Tarask, and whoa. it's a uh, challenge yeah. oh, yeah. 34. <laughs> Hold on. Well, I, got, back so, I, mean, I want to throw that one out there. Yeah. Yeah. That that. That uh, dryad, she ain't messing around either. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's there's just so many monsters that I could go through. I mean, and, and I'm I'm talking like just the ones I made, and there's you know dozens and dozens and dozens beyond. That. Like like I got to do the genies, I did a bunch of the G's. I did a bunch of G's, so I did genies and giants and golems and so much cool stuff in there to to, to riff on those concepts. And and I could talk about cool monsters out of the book all day. But oh, absolutely, <laughs> we're gonna have to rein it in somewhere. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know how I missed the Armageddon Tarask, my friend. Oh, no, it's okay. Because <laughs> uh, it's all yeah. the way down in T. <laughs> <laughs> Created yeah, by Tarask, the King of Hell is Armageddon. a deadfall switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has uh, uh, he... dead man switch on the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> he, he has to put it to sleep every month, because if he doesn't, it gets out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's his insurance on not being deposed or killed or stuffed in a box or, or whatever. <laughs> sure, overthrow awesome. me, then Fluffy gets out. <laughs> so do, do all these creatures come with the bestiary in addition to the tools? Yes. 
Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I mean, we, we went to the trouble of, of making all of these monsters in order to test the system. So it just seems natural to include them in the book. And, and because they're made with the system, then you already have all these ready-made creatures. Uh, and and uh, one of the benefits of the system is that it makes monster advancement or regression really easy because you can just look at the table and very quickly reference what the changes in statistics should be. So since you already have a book full of monsters to go along with the system, uh, these monsters end up having a lot more utility. So you know if you, if you want to use that pacifist trumpet archon, but CR16 is maybe a little bit too high, you can very easily drop that down to by four CR or whatever it's going to need to be in order to work better. Really, even just these monsters would be worth the price of admission. And then you yeah. also get the whole toolkit that was used to build these monsters. It sounds like it's the most sort of precise and easy way to build a monster <laughs> that uh, that anybody has really come up with in a long time for any form of D&D or Pathfinder, you know? You get so many monsters! <laughs> uh, it feels like you guys could put out just that and put this other thing out as a separate product. I love that it's coming together um, in, in one thing for people to buy. That is amazing. It's really, yeah. really great. Um, you know, and, and you're talking about, it's already there, it's already written, you know, we're going to get some great art if this Kickstarter funds. Uh, we're going to see some more cool stuff. Hopefully, we're going to get you paid, Stephen Rowe. So, um, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, nice. that's that's it. I mean, uh, we, we just we just we uh, I mean, like, I love this book. Um, I I've put so much time and effort into it that it's a labor of love at this point. I, I don't I don't need to get paid, but it would be nice. <laughs> but I just I, I, I feel that this is a tool and I want to put it into the hands of GMs everywhere. You are, I mean, that's just, that's amazingly noble. You're doing, you're doing the Lord's work there. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you, you know that uh, all, all writing to a certain extent is just, you know, the, the creative process. And, and I, I love what I do and I love writing. And if I wasn't getting paid anything at all, I'd still do it just, just because I enjoy it so much. But it will be nice to get you reimbursed for your efforts. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife will certainly appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Dan Dillon, who two weeks ago was talking about the lack of money in RPGs, I'm yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, understands. Yes, we would We would like to see this uh, uh, go beyond. So do uh, are there any details yet that we could talk about about uh, any stretch goals or that kind of thing that might be coming out of the book? Uh, absolutely. Um, our our first stretch goals are going to. I, I mean, obviously, the book is very focused on GMs. That you know, you're creating monsters. Uh, you have a bunch of monsters that you're provided access to. So it's it's a very GM focused product as it currently stands. So a lot of our uh, initial stretch goals are going to focus on expanding player content. Uh, so one one aspect of it is is that uh just just because of the nature of how the system operates it lends itself very well to creating monster classes for PCs um because it breaks out monster progression uh by CR so it ends up looking very similar to what a, a player character class might look like so um on top of that since you know the ability points are all broken out and you can see what your ability point is it increases per CR that likewise lends itself very well towards creating uh, player character classes out of monsters. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one thing that that we really want to include. Uh, then there's also just a lot of you know little aspects of the game where players involve themselves with monsters, like summoning, uh, animating objects, uh, creating undead. Uh, so we want to include a chapter that involves all of that. Um, 
We also want to do talented templates because uh, likewise, the system lends itself very well uh, easily to the idea of, well, what, what happens if I just want to, you know, boost this monster by two or three CR? What do, what do I get for that? Uh, so we have a we want to we want to have a system that allows it to be a little bit more modular with that creation. Yeah, I love that. I really, really love that. Uh, that sounds awesome. So let's hope that this gets super funded. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, if it, if it gets super funded, uh, then we have a. I mean, like we we'd like to involve all of the best bestiaries. Um, currently, it's just bestiary one, but it's and all the universal monster rules. Mm-hmm. But you know, if we can get bestiary two, three, four, five, um, bring all of those monster abilities in. I mean, with every book. That would be added onto the system. It, you know, expand your options for monster creation exponentially. Wow! Wow, that is awesome. That's really, really cool. So, take me back. Uh, where did you get the idea for this book? Like, you, just, you were like, you know, I have several hundred hours to kill. Um, why don't I do this? Was How that, about I, but before Stephen gives you the exact, you know. <laughs> blow by blow on how it happened. I could just tell you very quickly how it looked from my perspective. <laughs> how it looked from my perspective is there was a moment, I think it was was it two years ago, 2014, December, some, somewhere around there? Maybe Something 2013. Like yeah, a couple years ago. Uh, early December, we were riffing ideas and, you know, the talented line came up and, and he had this, this, this wild hair for the, the talented bestiary. What if we did this talented thing, but for with monsters, so you could mix and match whatever. All right. I'm, I'm going to go tinker with that. I'll see you guys in a little bit. Come January, <laughs> he emerges from his hole with a sheaf of spreadsheets, right? <laughs> so he vanished from, you know, Four Horsemen. You know, his, his, his obligations were handled, but he didn't pick anything else up. For that entire month, he came back about 30 days later with what was a very robust skeleton for what we're presenting you now. And, and all the rest of us have done at this point is help weave some flesh onto the bones. But it, it, it was, it was about a solid month of him vanishing into whatever hole he goes into to write. And he came out with this monstrosity. Uh, so yeah, know, no, like I... the, the stone tablets is essentially you were coming down. Yeah. From I, well, you know, just uh, occasionally, you know, inspiration strikes, and and I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how the creative process is for other people, but when I when I get an idea, I need to put it down on paper as quickly as possible, <laughs> or or it just it, it just keeps running around in my head, driving me crazy. So <laughs> where, where the inspiration for, for this came from was, uh, was the Talented series by uh, Owen. And so from my understanding uh, is that, you know, the Talented series has been incredibly popular. And I've had the honor of getting to work on, on it as well uh, for Talented Witch, uh, Talented Cleric, which is coming out soon. Uh, and I'm working on Talented Druid right now. So I, I think that that series uh, is, is amazing and adds so much to the game uh, because I, I mean, like my favorite, one of my favorite aspects of the game is just character creation that, you know, uh, infinite possibilities, uh, having a story and ha- trying to find the perfect mechanics to make your story uh, more full and rich. So uh, that, that is, uh, you know, the, the first place where all this came from. And from what I understand, Owen had a, a lot of people, asking him to to make a talented bestiary and you know he he came to us asking us if it'd be something that we'd be interested in doing 
And obviously I was extremely interested in doing it. <laughs> so, so I, I wanted to, I wanted to have something that was uh, worthy of presenting uh, because this was, this was still very, uh, when I started working on this, it was very early in my freelancing career. Uh, so I, 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 you know, a lot of it was, yeah, I, I've got something to prove and, <laughs> and this is going to be my, my, uh, the, the thing that I hang my hat on that, you know, this is, this is how I'm going to make my name. And, uh, I mean, like we've come so far since then, but this has always been there and we, it's just, you know, as I've improved as a designer, I keep returning back to it and, uh, seeing things that I missed, uh, making tweaks, uh, and, and improving it, uh, constantly as we've gone along. But that part of that just comes from hundreds of monsters are hard to get through design and development. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as far as improvement and refinement goes, I will say that having all of those other people, all those other designers come in and help us out building some of these monsters Absolutely. Was, was just invaluable, right? And uh, in, in Stephen touched on this before. It, it exposed so many oversights or things that we just never thought of, uh, you know, little things that uh, unintended interactions in the systems as they were presented. It was just such a valuable refinement testing in, in development process to, to sort of just vet the system and uh, sand off some of those rough edges and, and trim the fat in a few places where something didn't work or <laughs> it was a great idea, but just too much, too much drag. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, that was just fantastic. And, and having so many people willing to come in and, and tinker with that stuff that he built and that we helped refine. That was, that was great. And, and, there's no substitute for that. If you can get someone else to come in and try your system and it works and they can build <laughs> monsters, you know, they can sit down in an hour and have a couple of new monsters banged out. That, that tells you that you're on the right track to something solid gold. Well, people can check out this amazing product by uh, going either to the tomeshow.com and looking in the show notes where we'll have direct links to the Kickstarter, or they can go uh, over to Kickstarter and search for the talented bestiary. Um, I'm sure it's going to be on the Four Horsemen uh, oh, yeah. official site. It will be on your Facebook page. Uh, it's already on your guys' Facebook pages. You're, you're talking about it and everything. Um, Steven, has, yes, sir. has your wife had the baby yet? Uh, funny you should ask uh she is due uh, april the 25th <laughs> wow. which 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 coincides with this kickstarter in a, in a really interesting way so um hopefully by the time people are listening to this i'm going to be a dad so there's there's that too on top of all of this right uh, right <laughs> so let's uh let's let's do this man a favor uh let's all go help him support make wonderful products uh let's head over to the kickstarter we'll you know definitely check this out at the very least you're gonna get over 200 creatures for your game which is amazing not to mention all of the tools you need to build to modify to make new ones it's gonna be an amazing, amazing product. I'm really excited for it. I think if you are a person who's ever been interested in game design, you should probably check this out because I imagine it's going to help you design things. Get involved. Check this out. It's going to be awesome. Where can people find you guys on the internet? Uh, Stephen Rowe, let's start with you. Uh, we have fourhorsemanofficial.com, which is our website. And so we post uh, weekly updates as far as uh, our products go. Um, and individual products, uh, as, as well as anything that we produce with uh, B.J. Hensley and Playground Adventures. 
then we also have our Facebook page, uh, which is the Four Horsemen official also. Uh, and then, you know, the, this Kickstarter, we're going we're gonna to work to be really active with uh, talking with people and getting feedback. Uh, and, and, you know, especially since uh, a, a big aspect of this is, is, you know, people creating monsters and working with the system um, that, you know, we, we want to see what, what people are making. Awesome. Well, that sounds great. So share your creations with these people. It's going to be amazing. Dan Dillon, where can people find you? Well, in addition to the uh, the general Four Horsemen locations, as previously mentioned, uh, I'm also on Facebook, um, uh, Daniel.p.dillon, uh, and then I'm also on Twitter, at Dan underscore Dylan underscore one, I think. Yes. That's true. And you can uh, yeah. find Dan in uh, all Dungeons and Dragons communities, uh, wherever good comments are being made. Yeah. Uh, he's probably I'm a, thank you. I'm a, I'm a member of the uh, one of the fifth edition communities on uh, on Facebook, one of the larger ones. Uh, I believe it's just called D and D fifth edition. And mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very active community. A lot of great discussion put together by some good people. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And thank you for keeping the discussion intelligent and interesting and positive. So, I try. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, guys, it's always a pleasure. You are both welcome back anytime on the round table. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Oh, thanks, man. It's always a blast to be here. And before we go, there's a quick final segment we do every week here on the Roundtable where we highlight a different DMs Guild product. This week's highlighted DMs Guild product comes from James J. Hake. It's called The Gem Dragons of Faerun. This little supplement from Cobalt Press gives you gem dragons. I'm talking crystal, amethyst, sapphire, emerald, and topaz. They've all been part of D&D since the earliest days, and now they're part of 5th edition. It's a 24-page PDF for only $4.99. You have to check it out. You've got five new dragon types, full stats for every age category, stats for the ruby dragon Sardior, who is the paragon of gem dragons, plus his allies and his lore, and more individual dragons that are a specific part of Forgotten Realms lore. You can find a direct link to Gem Dragons of Faerun over in the show notes at thetomeshow.com for this episode. Thanks to my panelists, Joe, Topher, Page, and Ben, and to my guests, Stephen Rowe and Dan Dillon. All right, everyone, you can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. There's tons of free resources for your D&D 5e games over there. All right, thanks for listening. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup and to Sam Dillon for getting this podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to the Roundtable.